All right. Well, good morning on a nice, sunny California day, just like we always have it here. Um, so last week, um, I shared what we're going to be about this year. You can throw them up there, Brianna. Um, I'll just remind you of those things. If you weren't here last week, uh, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast, not because we want more subscribers, but because we want you to, to know about what we feel like God is calling us into as a family together. And so I encourage you to go back and, uh, and do that. One of the things up there, there we go. Um, number one says prioritizing the di- discipleship and development of leaders. Uh, I didn't talk about this last week, but, but part of that is not just leaders here but also leaders internationally. Um, that's why we've been spending time in Denmark and Europe last year. Um, I want to introduce Jez over here in the corner. Um, this is Jez. Jez is, in, uh, Jez is in England. He's leading uh, a Soma church in England, and so he's here with us um, at kind of by mistake today, actually, or by accident in some ways. This past week we were down in San Diego with about another 150 or so leaders from other Soma churches around uh, the country, um, and somehow Jez lost his passport, um, so Jez is here still. Um, but the grace of God in that is we also have a training this afternoon where if you desire to be a leader or if you're new with us, we want to encourage you to come to that. And since Jez is here, we're going to use his English accent because it always sounds better. Even if I say the same exact words, if you say with the English accent, like it just sounds so much sweeter. And so Jez is going to share with us some this afternoon as well. And so I want to encourage you to come and be a part of that, uh, the next five weeks of training in that um, really kind of Soma basics, really the, really gospel basics. What is What is the gospel? How do, how do we live this out in the everyday, and, and, and what does that look like for us as a church? And so that's in El Segundo, um, starting at 3 o'clock, 3 o'clock, except for Super Bowl Sunday. So when the Packers make it, maybe. Oh, my word. I, I, I may have to put a bold prediction. I think Atlanta's going to win, but... But I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. I keep saying the Eagles are going to win, and that's never happened either. So, so you're probably going to be fine. Um, anyway, um, also part of the development of leaders is we want to develop leaders internally. And so today, um, Josh is going to come and teach for us. Um, this is actually Josh's very first time publicly ever given a sermon. And so um, it's a lot of pressure now that we just put that on him. Yes. Um, he's been pairing since like last June. I gave him the passage and he just started working on it this week, actually, uh, <laughs> even though I gave it to him that far back. No. Um, anyway, I want to pray for Josh um, and that he would encourage us and that the spirit would teach us and that would move in our hearts this morning as we continue uh, in the book of John. And so let me pray. Uh, Father, we thank you um, that we get to worship you. We thank you that your spirit is alive and well and that your spirit actually teaches the depths of God to us. That is an unfathomable uh, understanding and meaning uh, in that. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would speak through Josh today and that you would equip us to be your people in this city uh, and abroad. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Tripp, thank you so much. I appreciate the introduction. Um, I also appreciate him setting your expectations really low. So prepare to be uh, surprised. Excellent. This isn't my first time preaching. Uh, It has been a passion I've tried to dodge like Jonah for many years, but God is a consistent hunter and is faithful and will find you. So 
this is an act of obedience as much as it is, um, you know, me allowing him to use me as a, a vessel to speak to you all. And so today our text is John 8, verses 12 through 32. So what I'm going to do is read that and then pray and then we'll jump right in. So John 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. The Pharisees replied, you're making these claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. Jesus told them, these claims are valid, even though I make them about myself, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know this about me. You judge me by human standards. But I don't judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect, because I'm not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. I am one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. Where is your father, they asked. Jesus answered, since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my father is. If you knew me, you would also know my father. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in a section of the temple known as the treasury. But he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. So, later, Jesus said to them again, I am going away. You will search for me, but will die in your sin. You cannot come where I am going. The people asked, is he planning to commit suicide? What does he mean you can't come where I am going? Jesus continues, you are from below. I am from above. You belong to this world. I do not. That is why I said that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Who are you, they demanded. Jesus replied, the one I've always claimed to be. I have much to say about you and much to condemn, but I won't. For I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. But they, didn't, but they still didn't understand that he was talking about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will understand that I am he. I do nothing on my own, but say only what the Father taught me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me, for I always do what pleases him. Then many who heard him say these things believed in him. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Father God, thank you so much for this time today just to explore your word, and I pray that you would open up our our ears and our hearts, our minds, Lord, uh, protect us from any distractions, and I pray that your message would ring through through uh, the broken brass trumpet that is my horn, God. I pray that they will, that, that everyone under the sound of my voice will hear the grace in these words. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the title of this is Cross-Examining the King of the Cross. So what I want to do is dig deeper into some of the concepts that both Jared and Tripp have brought to us before. So, in John chapter 6, Jared Bryant was preaching and he was talking about giving us this, this introduction, um, a life-giving definition for what it means to believe. So Jesus taught us that true belief is so fundamental to our existence that we feed on it to sustain ourselves, literally like vampires. Like vampires, chasing blood, um, that is how we hunger for certain things. So you might hunger for popularity, or you might hunger for um, money, or hunger for being seen as beautiful. 
and that's what you need to like sustain your identity. And what Jared taught us is that actually we need to hunger for Christ, who is the bread of life. And by feasting on him, we will find true life and we will actually fill and sate that hunger. So that's chapter 6, belief. Now contrast that with chapter 7. Tripp was speaking to us last week and he talked about unbelief and atheism and its ramifications. And so basically you have atheism and skepticism and this dark and twisted path that we can follow kind of just going our own way. Um, we gave examples about how you can fall into bondage and to sin and to error and to relational strife and pain. Um, and he challenged us to examine our own lives in prayer, asking God to reveal to us ways in which we are victims of our own unbelief. So, this week in chapter 8, we'll get a different angle on belief versus unbelief and explore who Jesus is and what that means for us today. So let me set the stage for you. So, Jesus is at the Festival of Shelters. Um, Chapter 8, verse 12, actually connects directly to verse 52 of chapter 7, and he's having this dialogue with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees have been berating him through all the previous chapters, asking him all these questions, repeating themselves, and so Jesus kind of almost goads them a little bit, but he, he starts this dialogue by making this very bold claim. So what he says to them, he says, I am the light of the world. Now, right away, for them... They're already like, whoa, 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 calm down. What? You're the light of the world? Um, what Jesus is actually saying to them is actually pretty bold claim. And so when they think light of the world, there's two different passages we can look at to see what they're hearing. You know, putting ourselves in their shoes. So the first one is Exodus 13, 20 through 22. And what we're seeing here is actually right before the Red Sea drama, the very famous one they put in every single movie about Moses. Um, before that, after they're leaving Egypt and actually running away from the Egyptians, um, God actually is guiding them. First by day with this giant pillar of cloud that they're following like a weird guide. And then at night is actually a pillar of fire. And so this light, they actually followed day and night. And the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or fire from his place in front of them. So why that's significant here is that the festival of shelters in Jesus' time with the Pharisees literally sitting around. They're celebrating this event. They're celebrating how God sustained the Israelites, their ancestors, through the wilderness, living in these tents, going from place to place as they get to the promised land. And Jesus literally taking that opportunity to say, yeah, I'm the light of the world, guys. And they're just like, uh, okay, that's a, a pretty bold claim. And so what, they, what they're... So basically, from this happening, there are two main doubts that come from them. Um, two main doubts, because essentially Jesus is claiming to be someone very important to them. And so, the first one they say is, you're seeing it here, in basically in verse 13. They're calling his testimony into question. They're saying, you can't possibly think that you can make these claims by yourself and be your own testimony. You can't do it. And so I'm going to challenge us to, to see kind of how we're moving, how they are looking at Christ. They don't have the light of the world. They're actually still in darkness. Their eyes are, are dim. They are blind. They can't see what's right in front of them. And Jesus, the light, literally talking to them is trying to help them out. So they say um, those claims aren't valid. Now, when they say that testimony is invalid, they're actually using legal terminology. So legal terminology in a courtroom 
they are actually indicting him as a witness, saying, oh, Jesus, you can't be your own witness, and you're certainly not enough a witness to convince us. And so Jesus' response is basically goes through and lists several different things that are actually his testimony that substantiate who he's claiming to be. Um, so the first one you see in verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, I know my origin and destiny. The Pharisees don't. They, they don't even know who, where Jesus came from, how he got started. Like, they, don't, and they, they don't really understand who he is. Um, the second one you see is that he's actually in intimate union. There's an intimate union between the son and the father we see in verse 16. Jesus is actually in such close relationship with God the Father that that also exists as a witness because that is where Jesus came from. And then the third and final is that both the Father and the Son are witnessing together regarding the identity of the Son. And that's, you can see that again in verses 17 and 18. Now, I took liberty here because the Pharisees are sitting here saying, you don't have any witnesses. But since the winter until now, in this very body, we've been reading through all of these witnesses about Christ and who he is. So one you'll definitely remember is John the Baptist coming in and saying that Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, the second one you'll remember is the Samaritan woman who, after she met with him at the well, she runs into town and saying, oh my gosh, you have to come meet this guy. I just met, I think, I think he's the Messiah. You have to come see this man. He told me everything about myself. Another witness, um, Jesus' works. We'll come back to that one in a second. And the last one is actually the Old Testament. So in John chapter 5, verse 39 You'll see here that he says, um, Jesus actually says to them, you search the scriptures because you think they can give you eternal life. They're like hunting and looking for this, um, the truth that's hidden in there that can finally free them from the law. But Jesus is, is telling them, but the scriptures point to me. Literally, the scriptures are pointing to Jesus as a witness. Now keep in mind, these are Pharisees. So they've been training in studying the Old Testament for many years, trying to understand what's there. So... They know the scriptures, but they still don't quite have it. So that's the first doubt they bring to mind. Um, so he just goes through. So after Jesus kind of rebuts them with all of these examples, again, a second doubt. Okay, well, now where is your father? Again, they are still stuck in darkness. Now this time what it looks like is that they're stuck in, in thinking in human terms. Now I can give you guys some examples. Uh, Nicodemus, Nicodemus in... Uh, John 3, 4, basically is talking with Christ, and he's saying, wrestling with this idea of how can man be born again? Um, woman at the well is basically wrestling with the idea, like, wait, you're going to give me living water out of this well, I'm assuming here, I don't see a bucket, I don't see a rope, how are you possibly going to accomplish this task? Can't be done. And then, you know, Jesus himself says in John chapter 6, unless you eat my flesh, you know, you basically won't be able to have eternal life. How can he tell us to eat his flesh? So again, these are all examples of people who are just, they're only looking through human terms. Now again, Jesus has already turned water into wine. Like, literally, turned water into wine. And when, while he's at it, second sign, maybe I'll do some healing. He heals the nobleman's son in John 4. All right, not enough, okay. In John 5, he also heals the paralytic. Still not convincing. Cool. Uh, John chapter 6, he actually feeds 5,000 dudes plus their children and their wives with five loaves of bread, two fish. Um, still not enough. Okay, got it. Uh, John chapter 6, he actually walks on water. Literally, man walking on water. So all of these things have already happened at this point, and these people are still just looking at him through this lens of 
basically how can you not they're looking through looking at him through this lens of a very human kind of just earthly minded not seeing any type of miracle any type of divinity here at all and so my question for you guys is in your lives and take a quick aside so here at soma this is not meant to just be a stand and deliver where you sit here as my innocent victims i just yell at you the whole time uh we actually have a dialogue and so this question i'm definitely looking for real questions and we can actually or responses and we can chat about it um but where in your life do you find yourselves thinking about god in just only in human terms not actually applying to jesus the the divinity that is truly there Okay. You just see... He's just like a taskmaster, not necessarily like someone who's been sent to rescue Okay, I get that. So you're saying, like, Jesus... Sometimes you think of him as just basically... It's a, it's a moral code. This is just a list of rules, the do's and don'ts. And, and you literally are living and dying by that list, beating yourself with that list, when in reality, the divine perspective is, no, 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 this is a how-to guide to find life and peace and blessing. Okay, excellent. Anybody else? How else do you just, in your own lives, um, get caught looking at Jesus through this lens of humanity? Well, I think when it comes down to, like, I don't know if this relates. It's like, um, when it comes down to, like, what's going on in the world, mm-hmm. you see God is in control, but then when actually something happens that really causes lack of hope or sadness, we, we don't really believe it. Mm. We believe the theology that God is sovereign, but then when it works itself out, that what we see before us mm-hmm. isn't what we want, we somehow forget God's sovereignty. Mm. And and we forget also, like, like our fight is against principalities and powers, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. not against flesh and blood. We forget that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I didn't pay her to say that. That's totally coming from her. Um yeah, absolutely. It's, again, this... So, one thing that we're going to have to wrestle with throughout this entire text and through our lives as Christians is this idea that, on the one hand, there's a, a moment in time or moments of time where we begin to believe Jesus for who he really is. And, we, and we're putting our faith in him. And that's kind of positionally, positionally putting us faith in Christ. But, and this is very clear... It's not that we maintain our position to our behavior, because you can't and you don't. God is the one who maintains us in this position. But there is this almost like daily application of faith to your normal life, which is what Jess is talking about. This idea of, I see the world and I go, oh, my theology tells me God is sovereign, everything's fine, don't worry about it, he's got it under control, not even worried. What do you mean they're laying off of my company? All right, your hair's on fire, you're running around, you're freaking out. All of a sudden, what happened? Where'd your, where'd your theology go? Well, that, that's a time when your faith is, you're just kind of taking the faith and putting it back here and thinking in human terms again. So I appreciate that. Anybody else? I think related to that, sometimes if I'm using human terms, I just, God is not even acknowledged. Mm. I can't see him. Yep. So in their time, they were staring at Jesus. Mm. For me, if I'm using my human thinking and eyes, then I'm just looking at human things. Yeah. Excellent. That's perfect. Again, just kind of being stuck on this human plane. What are my human resources? What can I personally, intellectually plan out and think of to solve my problem? And that's all there is. Excellent. 
So the Pharisees here, they're, they're, the darkness here is that they are stuck in, human, in thinking in human terms. And so the light of the world applied here is Christ is don't get caught thinking only in human terms. Um, follow the light so you can see clearly. Um, in any situation, follow the light so you can see clearly. So it was their spiritual blindness, their lack of light, that denied them seeing Jesus for who he really is. So he's not arrested in John uh, 8.20. He's chatting with the Pharisees. And then he begins to address you know, the Jewish people in verse 22. Um, so what we're going to actually hear here is actually it's kind of a shift. So in the first set of, of verses here, you know, 12 through basically 20, he's addressing religious leaders, religious people, people who know the scriptures, and you have to kind of wrestle with them in those terms. But then he's kind of shifting over to the Jewish people who kind of know the scriptures, um, but they're still not on the level of the Pharisees. And so Jesus is going to help. Basically, we're going to see Jesus deliver a gospel call to belief. We're going to see Jesus actually kind of walk them through the steps to faith. So he opens up in verse uh, 21 saying, Jesus said, later, later Jesus said to them again, I am going away. You will search for me, but will die in your sin. You cannot come where I am going. The people asked, is he planning to commit suicide? What does this mean? You cannot come where I'm going. And then Jesus says, you are from above. You're from below. I'm from above. You belong to this world, and I don't. That is why I said you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. And so here, Jesus is saying, again, keep in mind, he's been doing all these miracles. He's been shaking up their entire religious belief. All of these towns are being shaken up. And then Jesus is saying, all right, well, I'm actually going to be leaving, and you cannot come with me. You cannot come at all. And so... It's like, geez, Jesus, like, why not? Like, these people are going to be experiencing, frankly, some eternal FOMO. Like, they are going to miss out on a lot, and they, they don't understand why. So the questions are, where are you going? Are you killing yourself? Um, after he tells them, you know, that you're going to die in your sins, they're like, who are you? And so Jesus is trying to reveal to them several things. Um, the first thing that he's revealing is within regard to their need, is first of all, they are dead in their sins. Verse 21. Um, they're not living a spiritual life. They are living in, in death. Um, secondly, they're earthly-minded, and they belong to this world of sin and darkness. You know, earlier we had heard examples of, you know, how in times we just kind of think in our own human terms. And imagine living your life with no faith in God at all, and you have to figure out everything. Literally Everything. Elections go sideways, you have to figure that out. Something difficult happens at work, you're the one who has to come up with all the answers for that. And so they are stuck in this world of, of fighting and backbiting and kind of just Jerry Springer-ish kind of things just kind of happening all around. And so they are stuck in this world of, of sin and darkness. And then finally, they're stuck in their unbelief. Um, Jesus is right in front of them, preaching to them. He's been showing all these signs. They still can't believe. And so... At this point, um, Jesus begins to reveal to them, you know, how they can get the Savior. He's demonstrated they have a need, and now he's going to roll into, okay, you have a need, you get it. You're asking these questions. You're kind of like those buying signals. Well, how do I, where are you going, and how do we get this? Um, now, the two key verses here to be able to understand this point are verses 24 and 28 in John chapter 8. So the first one, Jesus says... Unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, 
you will die in your sins. And so in this statement, you know, there's a principle within, within Christianity that one of the best ways to understand a passage is to interpret it through the lens of another passage. And so looking at Romans 3, 23 through 27, um, Paul is actually talking about what's been called, you know, the Acropolis of the Christian faith. But basically it is exactly how we think about um, Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, and its implications for us. And keep in mind, we're trying to figure out um, what is this, how does one get saved? So this reads like this. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. Remember that dead and sins thing. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows us that God was being fair when he held back and didn't punish those who had sinned in times past. But he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. And he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No. Because our, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law, it's based on faith. So like Ian opened up earlier, talking about this struggle he has with, on the one hand, I know what I'm supposed to do, but on the other hand, I know I'm saved and I'm in the family of God, but I still have this dynamic of how I relate to God is based on how I'm performing. Performing against what? Well, performing against the law. Okay, well, here Paul is laying out to us very clearly that there is nothing to boast about. That it's not based on us obeying the law. It's actually based on our faith. And so here what we see is that it's faith in Christ that saves, not your keeping of the law. Now, how amazing is that? So if we were to compare and examine other world religions, what you would see is that all of them have some type of saving or enlightening or reincarnating, kind of like reincarnating through better tiers of reincarnation, but all of it is actually based on your performance. The one thing that actually sets Christianity apart from every other world religion, bar none, you literally can splice them into two categories. Um, one is based on how you're performing, your behavior, how you live your life, and the Christianity is not. It's just not. It's based on Christ and what he did, which means for all of us, we get to rest. We get to rest. You don't have to walk through your life thinking, am I, doing, am I living my life the right way today perfectly so God will love me, so I can be a good person, so I can be you know, worthy of, of love, of other people's love, or worthy of being accepted into God's family. Not here. Not in Christianity. In Christianity, it is Christ's work on the cross that actually gives us our place with God. So, verse 28. We're looking at Jesus is still chatting with these people and they still don't really get it about who he's talking about. Who is this father that you keep referencing and and where are you going and just all these questions. So then Jesus finally just like, like puts the cookies on the bottom shelf, as people say. Just here it is, kind of breadcrumbs, I'm going to explain it to you. Um, Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will understand that I am He. So now in this moment, 
what does he mean, you know, lift up the Son of Man on the cross? Like, these people are living under Roman persecution. They're seeing people getting crucified day in and day out. Uh, the Romans actually used to line the roads into major cities with crucifixes and with criminals as kind of like a warning sign of, you know, this is what we're doing. And so why would he bring up this image you here? Now, way before the Romans ever got involved in Israel and started bothering these folks, um, what you see is that Jesus is actually referencing something that happened in the Old Testament. Um, at another time, when the people of God were in trouble and they needed saving, they needed help, they needed healing. And so John alludes to this in John uh, three fourteen through 16, and then what he's alluding to is actually in Numbers. So I'm going to pop over to Numbers and read that for you. And so the situation is that, um, again, the people of God are, have left Mount Hor. They are, this is after the, again, fleeing of the Egyptians, but before to the Red Sea. And so they're on their way to Edom. And the people are grumbling. Now, how many of us have children or little nieces or nephews who are good at grumbling? Anybody? A little bit, a little bit. And how does that make you feel when you're, it's one thing if you're like grumbling over there, and you're like, okay, go over there and grumble all you want. But something else if you're in a car, on a trip, for many hours, and it's a constant, yeah, 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 she poked me, she hit me, she grabbed my shoe, oh my gosh, are we there yet? But keep in mind, these are adults and children whining about how God has treated them. Oh, God, it's unfair. Oh, you took us out of Egypt where we had all the food we could ever want. And there was vegetation there. And we had crops there. And we had houses there. Like, God just brought us out here to kill us. I don't even trust that dude. I just out here because everybody else came and he gave us that gold on the way out. Like, they're literally complaining and griping and moaning. And so, during this, they actually speak against God and Moses. And they say, you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? There's nothing to eat here. There's nothing to drink. We hate this horrible manna. Imagine this for a second. Okay, so you're part of a people group. Um, you are born into slavery. You have been... You have no choice about that. Everyone in your family, all of your friends, all believe this story that one day, you know, the scriptures tell us that we'll be freed. That God will come deliver us. Because he gave this answer to Abraham. It's going to happen one day. Okay, great. So it finally happens. Literally, plagues, people getting destroyed, fire falling from heaven. Like, all this is happening. All right, you're finally free. You're walking through the desert. And you're starving. And then at this point, food is falling from the sky. Like, cloudy with the chances of meatballs. Anyone ever read that book? Anybody? Catch a reference? Okay. So... You're waking up every single morning with just food just around you. Just like, oh, look, I'll just take a little bit of this. and like That's your food for the day for free. You didn't grow it. You didn't have to protect it. You don't have to carry seed with you. You're walking through the desert. Food's falling out of the sky. And these guys, these guys are complaining about it. We hate this horrible manna. So the Lord, his response is, he sends poisonous snakes among the people. Yeah, you know, I agreed, right? You're kind of like, it's kind of harsh, guy. But at the same time, like, You've been pretty solid with them, and they're kind of just like griping and complaining about this. So many were bitten and died. 
And so the people came to Moses and cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prays for the people. Then the Lord told him, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to the pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Now, why spend all the time digging out this passage? Check my time. Good. Why spend all the time digging out this passage? How does this relate to us? A bunch of people... Thousands of years ago, getting bitten by snakes in the desert and things are falling out of the sky. Why are you wasting my time? Well, the reason why I wanted to belabor this point here, first of all, the clear connection to the speakers that Jesus was talking to about the stories that they have been hearing their entire lives, the lore of their people about how God saved them from Egypt and how there was this episode of snakes in the wilderness and they lifted up a snake on the, they lifted up this snake and people looked at it and were healed. Um, not something you forget easily, especially in a culture like, like that of the, the Hebrews who are constantly reciting and remembering all these things that they're doing. So, but there's a second reason. And that second reason is that this applies to us today. All of us, I would argue, were born slaves. Just like the Israelites in Egypt, we were born slaves to sin. We were born with no other choice but to be in bondage. You could say that we were bitten and poisoned with this, this, un, this, with this inability to completely stop sinning and turn our life towards God on our own and just walk with him. This poison just runs through our veins. We're born with it. And yet, God has made a way for us also to be healed a way for us also to find life and to have that poison removed from us. And so Jesus becomes that ultimate bronze snake, if you will. He becomes the the ultimate symbol of God's love and provision for his people. And that if we merely would look upon the cross in faith and believe that that is how we are Forgiven for our sins, not from our own works, like we've been talking about this entire time in the law, but that we're actually believing it based on simply the fact of Jesus' testimony that God has sent him and that he was hung up on this cross. If we believe it, we too will be healed. So, my major point here look to the cross, see the light of the world hung there for your sins and mine. Believe in his testimony. We have gone backwards and forwards through the Bible here, talking about all of these different people who have given us testimonies about Christ. Um, I didn't have more hours, otherwise we could run through the Old Testament and see all the different specific prophecies that Christ fulfills. Coming from Galilee, being born in Bethlehem, coming through the line of David. I mean, it's nuts. Um, I've actually seen people take the scriptures and prove that Christ walked into town on the exact day, the exact minute that he's supposed to, according to prophecy, from the Old Testament. Like a 400-year gap, and God called that shot, and he walks into town. Like, it's, it's out there. Um, there have been critics who have said, 
yeah, that's a lot of fluff. I actually did the math. You guys got it wrong. Your Bible's jacked up. That's not real. Can't believe it. Um, so they did the math, and they were right. What they actually found is that the math was off by a little bit. But science caught up. And when they actually calculated for a full, basically when they, when they actually calculated for a leap year, the fact that it's not 365 days a year, it's actually more than that. When they did the math, guess what? It trued up again. It trued up again, and he came exactly at that point. Why, do I, why am I doing this? I want you to believe. I want you to believe. John is, wrote this book begging us to believe the testimony of Christ. This entire chapter, and believe me, it took me so long because I am wrestling with how do I get all of this to be one cohesive message, and what it's crying out to us is believe. To trust the witness that has been spoken about who Jesus is, and then follow him. And so, my charge to you is that when you're feeling lost in life, when you're feeling like you're feeling the darkness because you don't like what's happening on the political stage, when you don't like what's happening on the international stage, in your own personal life, when you're finding, when you're having struggle, when you're like, you just don't know if what you're doing still makes sense and if things can get better, look to the light. I beg you, look to the light that is, that is Jesus Christ. Look to him, trust him, and follow him. And so, once that happens, we can see the, the immediate change in our lives that we should expect. And this is kind of my closing thought, wrapping up, and then I'll pray for us. Um, John 8.31-32, Jesus says to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teaching. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So in this passage, Jesus is saying, once you've embraced this truth about who he is, you no longer have to keep the law to make yourself right with God. But instead, you will keep this law because you are his disciple, and you will be faithful to his teachings. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this, this sermon, it's not the fact that you're keeping, his, keeping the law is what saves you. It's that once you have truly began to feast on the bread of life, once you have truly began to follow the light that has come into the world, then you will find yourself compelled to want to follow. And that's the major difference. It's, it's old preachers used to say, uh, God, it's not your, your have to, it's your want to. God changes your want to. Your tastes will change. You won't have to like begrudgingly fight to do the things that are on that list. No. Instead, you're like, wait, you want to do what tonight? With who? Going where? Uh, that sounds like it could be a thing people do. I'm actually not going to go, but I appreciate the offer. Really do, thanks. I'm going to bow out. All of a sudden, it, it, it's your taste change. Um, and so, that walk of life will set you free from this bondage to sin, and then you truly will be free. And so, let me close this in prayer. Lord, please help us to trust all of the testimonies that you've provided for us. Please help us to look to your light 
and to follow it to life. You have paid the highest price to be our light and our guide. Amen.